Welcome to Fruiting Body Podcast with your host, Brendan. Today, we have an absolute OG pioneer of the UFC. It is James Tahuna. Now, we're going to be diving into James' story, but more specifically, understanding... Now, we should have called him Jamie. We talked about that. <laughs> now, he he is a definitely an absolute pioneer of the UFC. He, he was in the first UFC fight in Australia. He won that. The first born New Zealander to headline a UFC main, uh, main card in New Zealand. Uh, but that's not all. Uh, we're going to be jumping into New Wave Engage as well and what he's doing for foster care. And this is kind of his, his new venture. Um, well, we'll talk about it, how new that is. So without further ado, let's get this podcast started. Okay, welcome, Jamie. Thanks for having me on, yeah. man. Excited to, hear. Excited to be here. Um, again, we keep it light and breezy. Uh, I want to jump at the beginning of your Getting into MMA, getting into boxing. Um, my understanding now is your grandfather was a boxer on a on a part of the World War II on a boat, and this is kind of maybe where these fighting derive from. Can we start at that point and kind of piece that all together? My grandfather was a really big influence on. Uh, he had massive influence on me growing up, uh, but he wasn't the main. Re he was an influence, and he was one of the reasons, but he wasn't the biggest reason. Uh, the biggest reason I got into martial arts, started out with boxing, was because it was a vehicle to help me build confidence, make me feel safe, because I had a lot of struggles going through primary school and high school growing up. Yeah, is that kind of what le led you now to pursuing its, its new, uh, sorry, new wave engage? Yes. How, how did that all come together? And we'll jump, we'll get back to the stories. We jump around here a lot. But um, how did that come together? How did you start this project? So uh, through my experiences growing up through high school, I had a lot of uh, difficulties with social, you know, being social, I had social anxiety. Um, I used to stutter a lot. I had low self-esteem, self self-confidence, and just really had learned, a lot of learning difficulties in, through school and had those struggles. So um, through this business that I've opened up, it allows young male uh, kids in foster care between the ages of 12 to 17, vulnerable ages, to be able to uh, reduce isolation through connection of like taking the kids out to the gym or taking them out to sports or swimming or piano lessons or something. Just being able to be there for them as a, an, a strong male figure did, about connecting back to community. Did you go through foster care as a kid, or is this something you you kind of? How did you end up finding this? Oh, uh, it's weird because my father he 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 suffers from severe PTSD. When he was twelve years old, he witnessed his mother being murdered by his father, and his father then suicided. Uh, my father saw that, and his two older sisters. So my dad was 12, he saw that. Uh, he'd been passed around to family members. Stuff happened there. He got traumatised again. Then he's out in the streets. He's just, you know, trying to survive pretty much, like hustle and survive. And um, he heals that street kid. And um, he went through placement and placement, meaning different foster parents, foster carers, mm. and um, had those similar struggles. Do you, do you have... Are you sharing those stories with foster kids that you're engaging with? Uh, some I am when they're ready for it. Yeah, only when they're ready for it. 
What, what do you find is the biggest struggle? Like these cases that, you know, come to the plate, like what is the most common theme you're seeing and what problems are they facing? The biggest problem is a losing connection with positive people, positive uh, male figures, because when they're in foster care, a lot of the times, uh, especially in crisis care or crisis accommodation, meaning uh, they don't have a foster carer or placement set yet, so they're in crisis accommodation, so they're out in units or like a hotel room, stuff like that, and having random carers come through and look and after This is age, kids age 12, that you're saying 12, yeah. 15, 16, yep. and yep. this is happening in New Zealand. Is it more in Christchurch or it's all of New Zealand you're so watching? No, I live in Australia, so it's happening in Australia, oh, okay. but it hap happens in New Zealand too. Uh, I'm not too sure where else, but um, yeah, it's it's happening. It's happening. These kids are in crisis accommodation. There's an organisation that takes care of these kids, and they'll provide the the emergency accommodation and the carers, the, the professional carers. How did you decide? Okay, I want to pursue this. I mean, there's always the uh, the uh, the day of the idea and the pen to the paper. I'm going to make this happen. I mean, your website's live. It seems like you got this 12 week program going on. How how did this kickstart? This uh, the male youth, they're at a there's they're having their own challenges, and if they can get past these challenges, they just potentially like they have so much potential. I mean, I I had I was lucky to have my mother and father around. Um, my uh, stuff that happened at home with my father that suffered from PTSD and what I experienced, it made me feel unsafe because and unstable i guess like i was always on edge just nervous yeah. of what could happen and yeah. yeah i don't know what was around the corner mm. like dad was he's my best mate he's my best mate today back then awesome father we just didn't know when he was you know going to be triggered from what he experienced and um i was on edge and i felt safe and then i was you know learning difficulties, all that stuff. And I talked to boxing and my main driver was, uh, yeah, <laughs> that's another story too. So yeah, my main driver was able to get me to experience those trenches as you experience in combat sports. And uh, I was able to like get quite quite good was it and kind do of, quite well. Was it a way of you know, preparing yourself for like the self-defense because maybe it's a ticking time bomb and you were, you were you pursuing, I mean, you went to a gym when you were about 12, 13? Yep. When you first started, did you, how, how did you step into that gym and why were you doing that? Were you like, okay, I, I want to take this so I feel more confident in my own home? So I grew up watching Mike Tyson on, you know, fight on TV and I was just thought, man, that girl, that guy's in a, a power position, you know, he, he doesn't fear no one sort of thing. And I wanted to feel that and be that person to be able to stand up for that person that my dad my dad turned into. Mm. And um, pretty much like my dad turned into the devil. Like when he was triggered, it went, in, went into um, crisis, he turned into the devil. And he would make everyone in the environment suffer. And he was a different person. So I trained myself pretty much every day to be able to face the devil. 
and there was my driver. Now, so, were you coming from a big household? I mean, uh, was there a lot of people in the home? I mean, usually like uh, Samoan families, Mari families, it's huge families. Um, so fa- family of four, my older brother and my mum. Mm. Yeah, so we were we all worked together as a team to be able to uh, manage dad and support him because he didn't have much support. He tr- he did have like counselling and many different therapies and talk therapies and stuff, but wasn't able to um, connect with him. And um, I guess just through experience and and time, our family was able to recognise those triggers. We were able to come up with... um, Deflection methods. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kind of like, you know, how to sit down with him, be there for him, um, be able to listen to him, understand him, show empathy, compassion, and be able to move up together. So you, when you find the gym, you're getting into boxing. I mean, obviously, at, at this point, do you have aspirations and goals to be the, the champion of... I mean, UFC probably was still in its infancy back then. So did, did you start to see a vision of a goal? Because at one point, I mean, you, you've went through the stages to get into the UFC and become a pioneer, especially as a New Zealander and representing that. Did you see that, or is it kind of step-by-step slowly moving? It was... I just... I think that you know, I had my role models. My role models always change every single year. You know, they went from Mike Tyson to um, David Tour, who was a great boxer, to um, you know watching the Pride fights and Vanille Silva and K1, Mark Hunt, and all those those guys. And um, yeah, I was just trying to emulate them and and get good at what I was doing, and and um, kind of evolved from there. You know. I, Mm. And I took some, I guess, there wasn't really much MMA training back then, so there was only like a small handful of us that were training in Sydney and we'll get together and then practice some moves and <laughs> see what worked and stuff like that and, and just rolled out from there, you know? How, I mean, back then, most fighters, I'm assuming, um, whether it was an outlet or, or I don't even say a hobby, it definitely wasn't for the money back then because the money probably was almost non-existent back in the early night or in the nineties. Now, as you're getting into the two thousands, that's, that's obviously getting much better. Um, these role models like Mark Hunt, when do you finally connect with them and your, you know, you meet your hero, let's say. <laughs> I'll never forget that day too. Mark Hunt was getting ready for his first MMA fight, it was in Pride. He just crossed over from K1. He was getting ready for his fight. And we shared the same jiu-jitsu coach. And my jiu-jitsu coach called me up uh, one one Friday night and said, can you come in tomorrow? Um, we can do some you know, MMA-style jiu-jitsu um, in the morning. And I'd, we got another MMA fighter there. He didn't say who it was. So I rocked up the next morning and... Rocked up a little bit late because I travelled hour and a half to to get there. What what year was this approximately? Uh, about two thousand and four or five. Okay. About two thousand four. Um, and yeah, I rocked up to the gym late, and I've walked upstairs, opened the door, and there's my idol, my cunt jogging around warming up. Already starting the warm up, and I've like, I looked around, and it was just me, him, and our coach. And I put my bag down and played it cool. <laughs> Jumped straight in and started jogging and, and we kind of rolled on from there, you know, like um, wasn't a fanboy, let that, left that on the, uh, out the door 
and just got straight into training and just relationship evolved from there. How important was he as a role model in your career? Massive. He's a huge role model. He um he's he he is himself. He hasn't changed. He stands up for what he believes in. And he's staunch about it too. And I like that about him, especially like now what he's been through the last like few years. With the Lesnar and the USADA bullshit yeah. and the fighter. Yeah, yeah. I think that's so good. And a lot of people kind of look past that. Oh, it's a it's a fight worth not fighting, but he knows it's not right. I know that's not right either. It's not fair. And he's standing up for what's right. Trying trying to make that change. Have you talked to him recently? I mean, it's very... It's it's almost... I don't want to say... Like, Dana White kind of also gave him, like, the double fuck you. It's like, he loses his case, and they expel USADA all within a very close uh, amount of time. Has he spoken about that, or are you... No, I haven't. I haven't. Yeah, it's very... What are your thoughts on that? Because it's very strange how that occurred. He loses his case, and then they get rid of USADA. It's almost like within two months. Yeah, no, I, yeah, something, something going on. Yeah, I something just can't work it out. I need some time. Yeah, yeah, I think it's probably the Connor thing. They're just like, fuck. Well, yeah, he, oh, he's man. not passing any piss tests. Yeah, yeah. Um, back when you were, you were again being the pioneer and getting involved in it. I mean, you, you've. I know their losses, but you went toe to toe with your showguns, your glovers. I, I don't, I don't know how to bring that up because they're like, thanks for bringing up all my losses, right? I've had Mike Swick on, and he's like, well, don't bring up all my fucking losses. I'm like, yeah, but those were the the, the top of the top guys. Um, when you're going through that, and and you're you're deep in the woods at that point, you still those guys are they're not they're they're still not the legends that they are today. When you're approaching them, were you? how are you preparing for that, especially when you're going like against a Shogun, a Gustafson, a Hector Lombard before even the UFC? Hector, I don't know much about. Like He was just a rising star that was finishing off people. When around that time, I wasn't really paying much attention to him. I was just doing my thing and jumped in short notice about a, you know, take a fight with Hector on a few days notice and first kind of southpaw that I fought and got taught a very valuable lesson from that fight. Um, Shogun, man, he's... I've been a massive fan of his since Pride. Like, um, man, I, I'm still... I am a massive fan of Pride. And when... Um, hmm, actually, I asked for him. I was on a bit of a win streak. I was on a four-fight win streak, like a young, hot prospect. And I asked for Shogun. I was the one to put up the hand. I, I suggested to my uh, manager at the time. I said, "Hey, maybe Shogun." And there's a lot of Brazilians in Brazil and um, Australia, and you know the uh, UFC is coming to Australia pretty soon. So you know, ready to go. Yeah, made that happen. How much of a rise? Like, was he past being a rising star at that point? Like, he cemented himself. Yeah, he cemented himself. I think he had like a loss or something, but then. Uh, the Shogun that I fought, <laughs> it was pretty. It was in pretty good shape, man. And the Shogun that I know from what I've watched and witnessed of his fights, he, when he's fighting regularly, he's on a roll. He goes very, very good. He's at the top of his game. But then if he has a bit of a spell, it affects him massively. And I know that the last loss that he had, he had a bit of a spell before then. And then... Um, yeah, had that loss and then rolled on straight on straight after that fight to fight me and then he was back in form, so <laughs> I got yeah, found I, out. <laughs> I think he only just retired too. Yeah. I mean, not not too long ago. Even even guys like Mark Hunt. Mark Hunt, he's gotta be 
probably 49 and he I think he only retired five years ago I mean some of these guys they 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 keep going into their 40s which is remarkable I mean you can't even even fathom that back back in the day so I mean your your time frame is kind of like 2008 to 2015 16 ish yeah 16 yeah 2000 yeah, 16, today 2000. with they didn't really have testing back then and that's what Mark Hunt's fighting for and I'm sure there's a lot of like unwritten rules as fighters, like you know, uh, don't talk about Fight Club. Was this prevalent, like in in like steroid usage back then, where you know who was on it, you might have known who you were fighting that could have been on it. Like, was was that widely known back then? Oh, there was talks and stuff like that. I didn't really go into it. I was just like tunnel vision on what I was going to do and what I was doing for training and, and what one who my next fight was going to be. So I wasn't really around it enough or, or probably wasn't a conversation but i just didn't retain or even it at see, all see it in, it in the gyms I'm, I'm sure places like australia because australia is fairly strict i mean for these things to to get into the country but the u.s and especially places like brazil i mean who knows what's going on in brazil yeah. um would you see this in the gyms or is it kind of hidden like people are if they are doing it they're keeping it very quiet yeah no it's conversations that's not really um yeah, yeah they, talked about they, like, they just quiet. Yeah. Your connection to Thailand, when did you first start? I mean, you came here 12 years ago. Was, was that for training camps for when while in the UFC? Yeah, I would have been, would have started back in oh, 15 years ago. Then started coming every year uh, more frequently. And I came here because of fight camps, man, in Australia. The fight camps back home in Australia wasn't really big, big enough. So I knew that a lot of people from around the world are coming to Thailand to, you know, prepare for fights or, you know, upskill themselves. And I just thought, yeah, that's that's what I want to do. To I Tiger? Just, yeah. To ti now, who was the, kind of the first one or, or was it just in general you're watching people flood to Thailand and you got the idea maybe I should be going there? Yeah, I had some friends that went over there and they're just friends, you know, talking around the gym and then I guess you get, get a bit of like a, you know, Bit of bit of influence from them and you trust them so then look do your own research online and yep that's the place how did that work with like your head coaches like you have your home gyms and then it's kind of like you know you're going away for a training camp was there any like um you know confrontations there or the coaches allow that to transition easily i was my own co uh head coach i think because <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> back then it was like you know mma was pretty small and there wasn't enough experienced coaches to be able to for you to be able to trust and it was it was me in in that in that cage at the end of the day it was me doing the work so i couldn't trust anyone else because i'm like mm, what experience have you done what experience have you got have you actually been in there have you <laughs> yeah probably <laughs> so i couldn't trust no one the coaches probably i mean with mma still up on the rise probably even the, the coaches themselves the strength and conditioning coaches they didn't have that extensive experience in mma to even pass on knowledge i'm assuming yeah they just had that specific area they were ex expert at and that was about it what was it like i mean so which year did you come to tiger 2008 2009 yeah it would have been around that mark yeah what was the soy like back then i mean now, now i know we're gonna make you feel old don't worry i'm 38 i'm getting there too i definitely look a lot older than that could you give a descript, uh, like be as descriptive as possible showing up at Tiger at that time? What did it look like? Uh, it was, I remember, I guess I was in that fighting game at that time. So I had my like, head down and, and knew that 
there was going to be some people there for a fitness camp and some people there for a fight camp. And it was a really good experience for me because it put me in an uncomfortable environment being it was very, very humid. Yes. And as we <laughs> felt it today, right? Yeah, yeah. And I'm born and bred in New Zealand. I love the cold and, you know, that's my thing. I operate really well in you know, the cold environment and I was way out of my comfort zone and I struggled, but it was those trenches that I needed to fill. And I picked up uh, a lot of, uh, got got like a few good relationships out of my time there. And uh, a lot of people were so welcoming, that community there. Um, like was it was it Joey Joey explained she was on two weeks ago there it's like the soy was just like rubber plantations and tiger was kind of a bamboo hut is is that what it looked like when you first arrived yeah there was like no walls you can see the you know the bush behind you and um it was just all kind of developing from there I guess yeah yeah it's it's inter- it's kind of like this mystery gem even back then to show up I mean. What the hell? Who first even, who came here? I I know there's, is it uh, Robert Huerta? Yep. I think he's one of the first ones. I, I haven't had him on yet, but I'd, I'd love to have that conversation. Just like, yes, there's MMA training at Tiger in Thailand, but who was the first pioneer to like open this door and then the floodgates came? Van Dam. Van Dam. Sport. Yep. From the, from, well, from, from kip, kickboxing. Kip, oh, kickboxer, right? Kickboxer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Kickboxer. Yeah, I was seen that. I was like, "That's where I need to go." Yeah, it's, I have a. I won't go too deep into the. I don't think I've told this on this podcast. I ha, I almost had Van Dam on this podcast by about three hours. I'll tell the story quick, and I'll t- and I have voice notes from him on my phone. I won't go deep. It's a long story, but basically, it was five p.m. at night. We've been talking for weeks. He needed to record. I don't fuck. Can I tell this? Yeah, I can't. Fuck it. It's so late now. Um, they made me sign some stuff. Anyways, he was supposed to record a voiceover for the Minions uh, sports ride. Somehow they found me, and I had a studio. He was staying over here. Yeah, and he, he, his, his assistant reaches out to me, and she's like, yeah, he, he needs to just use your mics and come in. I'm like, who? They're like, oh, Jean-Claude Van Damme. I'm like, yes. And um, around f- everything was signed, ready to go. Sorry, I guess it went a bit longer. So at 5 p.m., he's supposed to come on the podcast at 8 a.m. because he had to be there to match USA time and uh, do the voiceover. So at 5 p.m. he calls me up and he's like, yeah, you uh, you tell the, the studio that I'm going to come at 2 p.m. I'm like, number one, I, I'm not in, <laughs> I'm not coordinating any of this. You're using my studio. And I'm like, and number two, 2 p.m. in Thailand is like, what time in USA? He's like, I don't know. We'll figure it out there. He's like, okay, never mind. I'm not doing it. It all fell apart. But um, I, I've showed a few people that I have uh, on my WhatsApp uh, tons of voice notes from he, me and him going back. Yeah, well, it's, okay. That's, oh. that's as close as I got to him because he comes and he stays at a hotel around here once a year. Um, but uh, uh, maybe one day. That's why I didn't want to tell that story. So maybe I'll cut that out later. Um, you're, now you're going back and forth between Australia and and uh, and Thailand. Are you just coming here for like uh, like a one week, a two week? What, what? How long were these camps? Uh, one week, two weeks, few weeks, a month at a time. It was yeah, just being around that environment, you know, like fighters getting around there, being around that your product, your environment. I've always believed in that to this day, still do. Um, yeah, I just surrounded myself with fighters, competitors. 
were they okay so today now you're training at bangtao muay thai and mma and we were going to do this podcast and ran each other ran into each other at the hit class they have two types of classes there now like they've put the the pros training on one side and then a guy like me that can go and do uh, muay thai on the other side but tiger back in the day were there, was it like 90% pros and then the 10% were just, you know, tourist punching bags? I can't even remember, man. I was that, I had that much tunnel vision when I was over there. That was all about <laughs> me. <laughs> <laughs> Times have changed. But um, um, yeah, I was, I, I've become really good mates of um, Ray and Brian and um, they really, you know, teed me up with, good guys to work with and and um oh yeah. they, they were probably the old owners right yeah the original yeah. owners yeah now i think it's a, a thai guy uh, i forget his name now um as well so they they were kind of are they babysitting you while you're here they're giving you a program like is there scheduling oh like no not really it was just like pretty much like winging it sort of thing because i mean you know when fighters are part of that circle when and um brian was living in sydney at the time and we had that connection, been you know competing on similar shows, and Ray was you know cool guy too. So I got to know him really well, and um, yeah, we just all like in that circle and looked after each other. Each other. Now, now you're are you living in Sydney or where are you living now? Living in Sydney. So you've met your role model, Mark Hunt, as you're coming up into the game, but you would have then became the role models for the younger crowd, such as guys like maybe uh, I saw you on a podcast with Robert Whitaker, but even guys like Tai Tuivasa, I don't know that whole connection. And that's why I'm asking the, the question. It's more who then, you know, who did you become the hero for? Man, I couldn't answer that. Eh? I don't, I don't know, but uh, Bam Bam, Tai Tuivasa and Tyson Pedro, I met them when they were just kids. So I used to train under a coach, um, uh, Pedro, and Tyson Pedro, Pedro's son, John Pedro's son, was 11, 12 years old at the time. Holy shit. And he would train with us, you know, young kid, and he's competing against older kids, and everyone around us that, were, that knew of Tyson, we knew that he was going to be something special because he was quite disciplined at that age, and... and he would retain a lot of stuff really, really quickly, and he just had a lot of determination. So no matter which path he took, business or sports or whatever, he was going to do, you know, well at it. And with Ty, he <laughs> was the other direction. He was a naughty little kid that would have been like 12 years old. They'd come to the gym because I think his mum and dad, like, sent him to the gym to try and, you know, put him back in line, and it was just... <laughs> Yes, he, he hasn't changed. <laughs> no, he, I've seen him over at Bangtao, well, maybe at least a year ago as as well. I mean, he's he's probably just turning thirty, but he does have a very good spirit. I mean, he brings a lot of energy to the gym. He makes it, you know, like a day like today was painful. He can kind of make it a bit more uh, yeah, funny, let's say. <laughs> he, um, yeah, he's he's really mature now. I guess how old is he now? Late twenties. He's got to be almost thirty now. Almost thirty. Yeah, twenty-eight to thirty. Something, yeah, I'm guessing. He's been around adults for a long time, adult men, and um, he's really mature for his yeah, for his age. He's developed into, yeah, man. Yeah, he. I saw I saw one of his podcasts, and he was saying that he was the punching bag for Mark Hunt. Is this true? 
<laughs> I think everyone was. <laughs> <laughs> Even yourself? Yeah. Oh, yeah, I've been there before, but, um, yeah, I guess um, you get to learn how to, you know, that you have, how important your guard is and, <laughs> and you learn so he teaches quick. you a few lessons, yeah. You've spoke a lot about on when you kind of ended up, uh, decided to retire and you're having, you had a brain lesion, just, you know, you, you have rough fights, you're getting concussions maybe while, while training. Um, is this still prevalent in these gyms or have you seen if, I mean, obviously you're, you're probably not in there as active, but are, are people pulling back now on this hard sparring? I think so. Yeah, definitely. Cause I mean, back then it wasn't a thing. And if, like for myself, for example, if I'd cop a knock in training because training is the hardest part about, you know, getting to a fight, I would cop a knock, knock in training and um, if I buckle the knees or something, then just brush it aside and you got to continue on and get the job done, finish what you're doing. And that was the mindset that, that you had, I guess. Finish, finish the job and then carry on the next day. And then maybe spar another couple of days, you know, where your brain's still rattled and trying to recover and all that stuff. Now are, they're bringing doctors into the gym at a certain level to, you know, at least make sure the guys are okay to fight. I mean, you told a story where you were sparring and you got hit so hard, but you don't remember it. And you kind of came to like almost 15 minutes later or longer of what the fuck just happened. Yeah, like I was in, I was kickboxing sparring and then... The bell went, the buzzer went to end the round. So I've walked off. As I heard that buzzer go off, that's when I've come to. Mm. So I started walking off. I'm thinking, fuck, where am I? Where am I? And I see my brother on the seat. So I sat down next to him and I kind of like gathered my thoughts and tr tried to work out what I was doing here. And I leant across to him and said, hey, what the fuck happened? Did I get hit or something? And he goes, yeah, well, you know, like half an hour ago or something, you got hit with a head kick and you buckled but you carried on you were sweet I was like fuck I do not remember even getting here I've only just woken up when I heard that buzzer so that was pretty scary and your your peers the people you're training with I mean back then would they be like okay yeah you're good let's go train tomorrow or would they sit people down and be like I think you need to take a week off uh, no they wouldn't because I guess you know I was there I was my man was saying, hey, no, no, I'm sweet. I'm cool. I'm like, when you cop a knock, like as a guy, you like try and, you know, no, nah, nah, you didn't get me. <laughs> <And they're laughs> you like, try and hide it sort of thing, you know. But I mean, cl it clearly they see the impact, right? I mean, you call a spade a spade. You're looking at it, You're like, I, I don't know if you're going to be <laughs> all right right now. But now I think coaches are going to be a lot different. And uh, the training partners as well, if they see that, then they'll, their voice is going to have a bit more weight now and, you know authority i guess through this concussion thing that's come to light yeah and you need maybe you need peers in the gym that look out for your best interest mm. going through those careers like you said yourself when your your ego is taken over nothing's going to hold you back yeah it's um <laughs> like i guess you don't want to yeah see yourself being in a vulnerable position mm. so like trying to brush it off and like I'm, I'm this you know i am a warrior so i'm gonna you know get back on my feet and continue on but I wish I had that. I wish I had someone that would, um, you know, I guess, tell me off <laughs> like, when yeah. I wanted to continue, you know? Yeah, like slow down, that's enough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe someone did, but I was just like, oh, no, no. And then I'll go somewhere else and spar another 10 rounds or whatever. Mm. So. 
after your MMA career, are you actively working with neurologists to kind of watch maybe every six months just to monitor to see, hey, do I have CTE? Is, is everything intact now? What do I need to make sure that, you know, something doesn't catch up to me later in my life? Yeah, that's a scary thing, man. Like when I copped that last knock, I copped two knockout losses. And the last one was, looked like a tiny little punch. Even in training for that fight, I would cop like a like you know like a a jab or something. I'll wobble at the knees like my yeah my jaw pretty much like got really vulnerable, and I guess I needed that rest. I didn't give myself enough rest to be able to you know recover from those those knocks, and um, yeah, it was I went to see a neurologist and he was an expert in his field and and he used to work he worked with a lot of different athletes in contact sports. And um, he pretty much yeah, said it to me straight. And you got to think about your next steps. You got to think about like contact. You got to you got to think about like what you do for yourself in the coming years. Actually, as in like you know your life choices and stuff like that, and you know mm -hmm. negative positive attitudes and and um, toxic ways of like alcohol and mm -hmm. drugs and smoking. Any, so that put me off. Like I haven't gone that route. I went the other way and started doing my own research and and um, learning new techniques, coaching, developing as a coach. Um, yeah, just li living a, a healthier, healthier lifestyle. Yeah, you're you're saying that. I mean, even with the lesion, it's kind of like a scrape on the knee, but it's maybe not going to heal on the brain. Is this this is a? Uh, uh, I think it would through those books say the brain does through neuroplasticity. Mm -hmm. It does change and it does heal, uh, depending on what you do for yourself. I guess. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it depends. That and that's why we're doing we're doing lion's mane. It promotes nerve growth factor, um, but we do we do like super high extract quality stuff. The biggest problem is the pharmaceutical companies. They want to suppress it because they yeah. want to sell you Alzheimer's, dementia, med medicine, whatever yeah. they can yeah. patent. Um, now you're you're you've been involved and you're well respected in the NRL, and you're doing wrestling. It's like it's like wrestling contact coach for rugby players, essentially. Yeah, it's like a it's pretty much like a tackle. Are you still involved in that actively? Yes. Yes. Um, can you speak a little bit about that and what what it's all about? Man, I um, I'm first of all I'm so lucky or grateful to be thankful to be a part of NRL uh, teams of just you know going from the UFC to straight into the NRL um, rugby league uh, comp and they are the best rugby league players well in the world I think um, and going into, over from a coming from an individual sport into now, team sport, man, I've learned so much. It's just been a massive, massive eye-opener. What the, the team sports, what they have in place, their systems. Um, Especially for protection. and Yeah, just everything, everything about, uh, a lot about performance, how to set up your, the athlete before he even gets out and starts training. What, what's your role and responsibility? Are you working with many teams? Or are you moving around? No, nah, so I'm just, I'm, I'm contracted to one team called the Penrith Panthers. Mm-hmm. And I am a contact wrestle coach, so I help with pretty much like tackle. So there might be a, like a one man, like a tackle with a ball, a ball carrier, and we've got a defender who's making the tackle. So when he on contact, he's trying to use the most efficient way to be able to 
slow the man down, you know, mm. put him on his back, put him in a uh, a bad position so that man has a long time to stand up and play the ball. We're, do you have a rugby background or are you teaching it from your MMA side? Man, I I had a rugby union background, but I didn't actually play a rugby league. Ah, okay. So I came into the game and said, hey, um, I don't know rugby league, but like um, I've, I will analyse it and I will get good at it because, I mean, I value the stuff that I teach. And I was just around some really good coaches that were able to like, you know, share a lot of information with me and just develop from there over the last seven years. And um, yeah, with Penrith Panthers this season and, and we just won the grand final a couple of weeks ago. Um, man, learned so much about um, yeah, team performance and high performance actually. How many people are involved? I mean, yes, you have the players, but like outside of that, in terms of the coaches, you got a head coach, you got an assistant coach. I mean, you got a, a, a wrestling contact coach. You probably have mental coaches. How many people are you working with? Man, the, oh, I'm not too sure, but I'm just, I think like the team coaching staff is anywhere between maybe 10 to 20 or more. I'm not too sure, but it's it's pretty serious. And it's, it's um, man, it's awesome just learning what everyone's role is and how they connect and how they work together so well and, and how the culture is and just everything comes into play. Do you have boots on the ground? Like you're at the games as well, so you can talk to the players as they come off or is it more technique and strategy and practice? Yeah, more technique, strategy and practice, but... Being there as a team too, like having that connection, having that connection with the team, that's huge. Everyone's connected. There is no separate, you know, groups or everyone's, no one's isolated. Everyone works together as a team. And when you work together as a team, you you, you can reach quite high. Coming from like a, a MMA fighting background, when you go and you win the fight, it, it's, well, more today they have bigger teams it's a bit different but for yourself you're kind of celebrating with yourself that first feeling i mean you, you've won the championship celebrating with teams can you describe that it's man it's a hard uh shared emotion a massive massive like accomplishment knowing that you know you've just been through the trenches for the last few months preparing for this fight Massive relief. I have all this weight taken off my shoulders. I can relax now and have a proper night's sleep. And it's just, just a scary thing for me to get inside that cage, walk inside that cage. Yeah. Everyone's different. But for me, when I walk into that cage, I'm scared shitless. I'm scared as like, it's like one of the worst things for me to go into. And I guess like that for me walking in um, was me facing those obstacles when I was a kid. Yeah, I've I've been in a couple fights in high school. Definitely got my ass kicked. But um, some of the, the the people that I fought later, we were friends and we've had conversations. And you would think they were the tough guys, but they've always told the story. They said actually, every fight I went into in high school, they would say I was fueled by fear. I had no way to run, so the fear fueled them to get through the fight, and they kind of just went into that tunnel vision. Is mm. that something similar? Yeah. Yep, it was, it was from those experiences in, in childhood, I would be that scared and that vulnerable and just, man, I, I couldn't even breathe like when stuff went off at home. <sighs> yeah. No, I got you, don't worry. <laughs> and um, yeah, I wanted to have that, per be that person of have enough courage, enough strength to be able to 
you know, stand up for my family and be able to um, stop anyone from getting hurt. Have you now deal, dealing with uh, New Wave Engage? Can you see that boots on the ground, that impact on kids? Are you connecting with them almost on a personal level where you could pick up a phone? Like, what's the relationship like there? Is some of the kids I can, some not right there just yet. But the relationship that we have with some of the ones that I've been with for a while, uh, to use this for example, uh, one of the young 13-year-olds, he was trying to get into his Facebook while I was driving. He's a passenger. And he was having frustration about trying to get into his Facebook. And I'm like, just try your password. He goes, yeah, well, um, I can't, but it won't work with this password. I said, what's the password? He goes, Tahuna. And I've gone, yeah. that kind of like hit, hit my heart, you know? Mm. It, uh, yeah, so you do have, like, you can have, like, a good impact on this this young fella. Um, they're in isolation. They don't have many people around them. So you're talking about um, the 13-year-old that wanted to change, change his password, and it was... Uh, uh, Tahuna yeah. and how th- how that affect affected you. Do you, do you have other? Um, it's not like a, it's not. Is it similar to like a Big Brother, like these type of these type of programs? Yeah. Yep. Big Brother, uncle, father figure. Well, they're, they're in the USA. It's called Big Brother. They call oh, this. Oh yeah. Okay. Um, they. Uh, oh, there's. Yeah, you have to watch the movie. It, you might get a laugh from it, but it's called um, Kingpin with Bill Murray. Do you know who Bill Murray is? Yeah. Okay, Kingpin with Bill Murray. He does a little, there's a part in it where he's the big brother, but every kid he's looking at, at looking after, the mom's like this blonde with fat tits. So he's like, every, <laughs> he's like I want to help out little Jimmy. And then they, they like frame to the, to the, <laughs> the mom. Is. The, these, um, the, the kids that you're, you're helping out with uh, in, in foster care, are they, what, what does that mean? Like, are they orphans? Their parents left them. Their parents have passed away or there's drug problems. What, what's the usual story? I can't describe there um, what, it, what it is, but what I can say is the parents or the parent isn't capable of being able to look after the young guy. It could be a mix of anything. Yeah, it could be anything. Yeah. Anything yep. along those yep. lines. Okay, just uh, we got about ten minutes because we've done good. I, I think this has been a really good podcast. I per, I have personal a personal question, more about uh, being uh, the Mori your your Mori background. I don't think I'm sure there's information on YouTube. I'm sure I could watch this after, but coming you know um, from yourself, can you explain a little bit about like the Mori tattoos? How do they earn them? What they're about? And and let us know about that that whole side of the world because I think a lot of people and maybe it's a bit long winded. They will kind of mix um, all the Polynesian islands like Tonga, uh, Samoan, Mori, and they they might think of them all as one, but it's very different. Can yeah. you talk about specifically for Mori? What is it? What does it represent? And even the whole tattoo process. So Maori, New Zealand Maori people were the most tattooed people in the world, and our it's called Tamoko the tattoo. Uh, it's it's our identity, so it explains many things. It explains where we come from, talking about our past generations, who we are today, where we're going. Every line, every 
curve, every marking uh, represents something. And it's a unique to that wearer. So you'll never see one tattoo on another person exactly the same. So everyone has their own story, their own journey, and where they've come from. So, uh, yeah, this is what I have at the moment. It's called a puhoro, and it's from the knees, below the knees up to the waist, and it's worn by uh, protectors of a tribe, so the warriors of a tribe. And, um, yeah, it's many, pretty much like on my puhoro, I have... Uh, eight hundred year old uh, uh, recording of my lineage. So it goes that back that many years. And you can you can follow that back. There's history, like yes. you're able to find that. Yeah. How how so? I mean, eight hundred years. You're talking. Um, I, I've done my a little bit of research on that. Like the Maoris, they came over. Uh, it's got to be around thirteen hundreds. Yeah. Coming to New Zealand. Yeah. Um, how how through did the, you how through, did you trace that? Through the creation and everything, it expands from there through stories. Mm. Yeah, and how does that stay in the family? These stories. I mean, at a certain point, it's there could be some telephone there. Like stories get lost, they get misinterpreted. It's passing down from and and your father's side is is Mari, correct? Yep. That's passed from his grandfather and his grandfather, and the stories can stay intact. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Your stories, storytelling, and Maori culture is similar to the many other pacific cultures and even the the australian indigenous culture the aboriginal culture same thing the stories are passed on from generation to generation and yeah what story would have your grandfather told you that you know maybe you can it always comes back what story Sto like is he telling you stories of the past of like you know kind of more tribal stories that they would sit you down and tell you something you know that that it's gonna have a, a different meaning to it obviously maybe it's not even literal yeah my grandfather so my grandfather's not on my new zealand maori side my grandfather's on my mother's um, side yeah my mother's mm -hmm. side um he never really spoke too much about the war and stuff like that because when we were kids we always you know hit him up about the war and hey so did you did you kill anyone did you shoot anyone yeah <laughs> you know young kids but um yeah, now you kept that pretty, pretty quiet until my nana, my grandmother, she passed away. We were all staying at his place. We were parked up that night. My cousins, aunties, uncles, the whole family were all there. And then my granddad sat down. He got comfortable. He grabbed his cup of tea and he sat down and he, um, he had a sip of his tea. And then he said, all right. And everyone's like looked around at him. He's try to get everyone's attention. He goes, I think it's about time for um, me to tell a few stories about my time when I was younger. And this is about the war, and he's never spoken anything about it. He always deters uh, the topic, you know, when we bring it up. And we just couldn't believe it. So then he explained himself how he was, uh, you know, he was, a, he, was a, he was a boxer on a big warship carrying the, all the soldiers over. He'd become like a champion on that warship. And another story where he was in infantry and then he, they transferred him to another job, being a, a driver for these inspectors. So he said one time, I see, he drove around these inspectors, right? And he created like a good bond with these inspectors. One inspector, one day asked him, hey, I want to show you something. Come follow me. So they go down to the secret bunker down below, 
He opens, he puts him in the bunker, closes the door. There's this big, massive curtain on this wall covering something alongside this long wall. And this inspector told my grandfather, hey, listen here, like what I'm going to show you, I want you to keep quiet and not tell a soul. So then my grandfather nodded and the inspector went up to the wall where the curtain was, drew the curtain and it was the Last Supper. And they were taking it from, they are transporting it from bunker to bunker to bunker during the war because the opposition was after, you know, trying to build their, yeah, empire. And so he, this would have been, he was in Germany then. He was actually, mm. okay, he wasn't just on the boat. Yeah. Yeah, wow. so he went, yeah, went in many countries and, yeah. And they were trying so to that was, save yeah. it and protect it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think there, there's some, what is it? Is it? No, not, man. there's a movie with George Clooney about that, about paintings and and they're protecting a journal. Oh, right. I can't okay. remember the name of it. Yep. Um, it's along the same lines as well. Yep. Um, so when, when he, did he like expand or is it kind of like they saw that and like, obviously it's moving on and then that's the end of it. That's all he's going to see. Yeah. That, and he told us another story about how he's, because he's a driver and then he'd be, I think maybe he, teamed up with the, the group of inspectors and then they got transferred to Japan and Japan, sorry, and the inspectors and my grandfather being the driver, they were the first to drive in the middle of the heart where the Hiroshima bomb was was dropped. Holy shit. So they, they were the first ones in there. Like and what days after or? I'm not too sure, but yeah, they were one of the first ones in there to inspect shit. I mean what was going on. There's yeah. gotta still be radiation. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well my grandfather went to ninety two so <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's that's crazy. Yeah, like he um yeah, he lasted quite well. Um and but these stories, you know, it's yeah, it's Well, they don't want to they probably don't want to sh- I mean, it's traumatizing to go back and and relive that as well. I, I, what what age was he when he ended up sharing that with you? Uh would have been like close to 90, I think. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I've had close my to uh, my grandma's 94. She shared a very interesting story with me. I'll tell you after. But it's the same thing. She shared something um, with me that I can't even say on camera. And it's, I, yeah, think right. th- I think they know that it's like any day. Like she, she's, she's probably knocking on, it's getting there. And they just know like they've been holding something in that story. And right before they know they're about to go, they're like, I need to get this out at least. Because then if they go, it's like, yeah. you know, they don't have to deal with it. Yeah. Um, okay. Just just before we we wrap it up, we'll talk quick just a bit. What drew what drew you back to coming to Thailand? Um, you're training over at Bangtao Muay Thai and MMA. You're here f- till next week. Yep, till next week. Just came over here pretty much for a seven day uh, training holiday. So different goals this time. I'm 42 years old, so this is all about running the business back home in Sydney. And Sydney life is, if you're not too sure what Sydney's about, it's pretty much like work life and like a hundred mile an hour and you have to be on the game otherwise you miss the boat you know it's all about work life it's it's fast over there um so that's a yeah this trip over here is a breakaway a training holiday i know the exercise is really really important and um yeah we came over i came over with one of my mates and and he he's all about training as well and this is all about longevity for us and being, being able to get back to sydney and then be effective in our, you know, in our work life and everything else. Yeah, good to break it up. And yeah. If you're coming with another buddy that's going to train, you know, because yep. uh, Thailand, things can get out of hand quick as well. 
Um, oh, you've been, been there, done that yeah, sort of thing, you know, yeah. experience that. And yeah. <laughs> this is all about, you know, this is different goals now. So, yeah, yeah we, uh, hangovers for us um, <laughs> hit us a little bit too hard these days. Yeah. So, can't you, handle it. Yeah, you get a hangover, it might last the whole trip, <laughs> especially in this heat. Yeah. Um, and how did you decide Bangtao? So, Frank, and plus all the boys come over Frank like. Frank Kickman. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so, uh, we know Frank quite well. Over the years, and um, um, the boys come over, Ty Tuivasa and Tyson and Mark, and um, yeah, it was just a you know, it's we're, we're on the socials, we're scrolling, we see the posts, and it's you know, somewhere that um, we can trust, and you know, we can find some uh, run into some similar heads. What do you think of the gym and the location? Awesome, yeah. man! I love how it's all spaced out. I love how big it is. Uh, lots of space. Um, very simple to operate, and um, yeah, it's just just very effective and close Love proximity it. to the beach. I mean, you you we're on Surin Beach. You said you were just over at the beach before. Yeah, it's gorgeous, eh? Yeah, man. That's Beautiful, the thing. Yeah. Like when you're in Chao Long and and Tiger and whatnot. Nothing against them. It's everything's so far from the beach. Mm. It's like twenty minutes. I mean, it's it's crazy here. It's yeah. like you're in Bangtao. You walk out the door, like yeah, yeah, drive yeah. two minutes, and you're right yeah. at the beach as well. Yeah. Okay, well, I won't leave your, your buddy hanging. Anyways, it's too bloody hot to do anything in Thailand right now. This is the perfect time for a podcast. Because usually right now, you're depending on what you want to do, I'm not one, I don't know about you, just to lay on the beach and tan. Definitely not staying active. But it's bloody, it's too hot that you're kind of stuck until 3.34 before you can really get back out there. Yeah, it's, um, I can't stay out in the sun for too long. Otherwise, I'll get okay, okay, dark pretty quick. <laughs> what, what are you guys going to end up doing for the rest of the day? Oh, uh, hit the gym. Go back at, for yeah. the SNC class at uh, five or just do your own no, thing? No, I think we're just going to pump some weights, you yeah. know. Old dinosaurs got to, you know, yeah. <laughs> keep stay in shape and prevent, you know, yeah, our force for them in the future. Yeah, I tried to, it's, it's nice to, I, I like how they have all the racks. Usually I just use the squat rack, whether it's, bench or squats but it's it's good in there because i i have a membership at, at a, a gym next door but i just like to do squats and a little bit of bench press but when you're in the air con you're not when you're doing my type of workout i'm not even sweating what's nice over there is like it's so hot at least you're getting a sweat in mm. and um the community is really good as well like you're able to interact and talk with people and, yeah. and yep. learn from them as well Okay, um, that's going to wrap up another episode. Right before we cut, I'm going to uh, shoot it over to this camera there. Uh, if you can just let anyone know, maybe if they're in Sydney. if um, I don't know if you guys take um, donations or anything, what you guys are doing on, on uh, uh, New Wave Engage or if people wanted to help out as well. Um, if you can share all that information to this camera there and we'll put links in the description. All right, cool. No, that's cool. I um, Yeah, I'm... I work with uh, a government-funded agency, and and yeah, I deal with them. And I'll, I'll put the website for uh, uh, New Wave Engage, and uh, I'll share his Instagram if you want to go check him out as well. I mean, um, it's I mean, again, thanks a lot for coming on. But it's interesting to meet the OGs from the game because a lot of the guys that are following you and and when you're training with Frank and them, I mean, you are probably their role model as well. So. Um, yeah, it's, it's great to, to interact with uh, these pioneers. I'm not trying to make you sound old. I was trying to go around in a circle there. <laughs> sound, I'm old enough as well. Okay. Old. <laughs> all right, that wraps up another episode. Thanks a lot for watching. Don't forget to like, subscribe, do all that stuff. We're out.